Hello, and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the digital audio stream in which the members of the AOK are casting gods out, broadcasting our doubts, and casting about for answers to difficult questions. Today on the show is the second half of my interview of Eric Reitan, philosopher at Oklahoma State University. Uh, Listen uh, for uh, a fantastic John Wright uh, fire and brimstone preaching against hell at the end, which, which I found out absolutely fascinating. I hope that you all enjoy the show. I want to cover a couple other things from the book real quick. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, Harris. Well, you, you talked about Dawkins a bit. Um, what uh, arguments that Harris makes did you find, well, did you find worthy of addressing in the, in the book? Yeah, one of, well, I, I, I take him on uh, with respect mainly in... In two chapters, the my the second chapter and my seventh, in the chapter on on basically the the concept of religion, mm-hmm. um, where Harris is looking to basically indict all religion for the offenses of religious extremists right. by saying that moderate religion uh, is a kind of enabler. Mm-hmm. Uh, that moderate religion uh, enables extremist religion by uh, endorsing this doctrine that uh, it's okay to believe anything you want uh, without reason. Um, and The idea uh, of faith, giving right. credence to the idea of faith, and not faith in the sense that you argue. For right, that. no. Uh, but, but faith in this um, broad sense. And... Um, what I uh, what struck me uh, when I was reading Harris was that um, um, you know he certainly doesn't go to uh, the church that I go to. Um, I, I went to a, a UCC church in which, um, well, I mean, one of the things that he says is that you know we should just accept, uh, just accept everything that anyone says and just tolerate all different beliefs. Uh, you know, UCC, liberal UCC churches in Oklahoma, they're the gathering ground for everyone who has, uh, who, who still has this ethical religious for hope. The ethical religious hope, <laughs> yeah. Still has this ethical religious hope, uh, but is uh, uh, really, really turned off or pissed as hell at fundamentalism, right? And uh, and so you have these. I've been to Mayflower. I know. Right. I know the crowd. Right. So so you have uh, a, a community that, I mean, we might say this is part of what Harris is trying to. I mean, I'm, I'm much more formal about my argument in, in the book, but uh, for this crowd, um, they, they're part of what Harris seems to be uh, wanting to include within the moderate religion. Uh, uh, envelope, or if not, then there's a kind of religion that he's excluded, right? Either way, there's a problem. Uh, right. um, if if he means to include them, then what he's saying about moderate religion isn't true of all moderate religion, uh, because he says that they're just sort of accepting of, or they want to, uh, I forget his precise words, but it's uh, promulgate this terrible doctrine uh, 
that people should be free to believe whatever they want, no matter how irrational or something like that. Well, they should and, be. Of course, you would say they should be free to do that. Yeah. But he doesn't have to not make fun of them or something like that. Not, well, I, sometimes I, I'm not sure if Harris thinks they they should be free. Really, I'm pretty I, sure he's, he's spoken out for religious freedom. <laughs> but, but, but he would say that that the problem with moderation is is that they're they're saying let's not argue about which religion is true. Let's just let everyone practice their religion and have their beliefs, and let's not engage in a dialectic over this, over what's true and what's not. Right. And I'm not I, I'm not sure if if you could accuse the UCC of that. Uh, I, I know right. that in the Unitarian congregation where I go to. We care about what's true, but we have an ethic of toleration. We can, you know, if we're going to disagree, we're going to do so agreeably. Uh-huh. Um, and there's, you know, truth truth matters, but everyone gets to f- have their own path, and, and we're not going to, you know, mock anyone who's made a different choice, who's made a different, you know, because we're talking about free thinkers of all kinds, religious right. free thinkers, right. irreligious free thinkers, all in the same bucket. Right, and, and uh, well, in, in a UCC congregation, they... The people who uh, attend this community um, care about truth. They don't think that anything goes. They think there are uh, standards by which we can justifiably condemn certain belief systems. Uh, But they also think that those standards by which we can justifiably condemn certain belief systems don't um, basically in some very clear and definitive way zero in on one belief system that is the one true belief system that we all have to ascribe to or we're being irrational or, 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 or immoral. There's this range of options that, at least so far, uh, are, uh, are still viable uh, uh, options to... Uh, uh, to explore, to embrace, to live by, uh, at least if one does so in a fallibilistic and self-critical way. Um, And this kind of fallibilism and openness to self-criticism is part of what's um, uh, embraced in something like a UCC congregation. Right. Um, And that's the essence of of free thought. And whether you're a religious free thinker or an irreligious free thinker, if you don't take that approach of being willing to question your own suppositions, intuitions, and all that. Right. And it's on the basis of this uh, endorsement of fallibilism and self-criticism that uh, a UCC congregation can take this strong stand against religious fundamentalism, for example. Because, the, I mean, the big problem with, with the, uh, this church over here is that they're not fallibilists about their own doctrines. They don't recognize the possibility that they could be wrong. Right. right, and that is a serious error, right? In itself, it, it would it would right. totally disallow the possibility of finding any errors and fixing them. Right. Um, so, uh, so in any way, in any event, um, either this category of moderate religion uh, is one that includes the church uh, that I went to for a number of years, and we can talk about why I moved back. It has a lot to do with gas, but. Uh, Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it has a lot to do with two kids who are no longer 
so young that they just sleep through the drive. Mm. And it has a lot to do with the fact that the ELCA voted last summer to uh, uh, open the doors to or, uh, ordaining uh, uh, gay and lesbian clergy in committed relationships. That's the one here. Yeah, so okay. so that made it possible for, for my family to return to uh, the ELCA church here in Stillwater. Cool. Uh, because they now uh, uh, had lifted the ban on uh, partnered gay and lesbian clergy. So this is uh, what, where I have a problem with Harris, is that it seems to me that when it comes to civil rights, and I'm really big on civil rights and religious freedom and equality for gays and lesbians and everyone, that there's more people in the liberal churches who are willing to work for these good things than there are if you included the all of the free thought community. Everyone who's a skeptic or an unbeliever, an atheist, an agnostic, all those numbers put together do not equal the power of the liberal churches to work for social justice or for equal rights. And me, I'm, I'm consequentialist. I'm concerned with results. I want people to, to have these opportunities like what you were just describing. Yeah. And I, I think if we write off the liberal churches, we're we're basically saying there's this massive force for good. But we're not going to work with them. Right. We're not going to we're right. not going to wor- work with them side by side for things like separation of church and state or equal rights for gays and lesbians. And that to me is just crazy. Yeah. You know, they are one of the largest forces demographically here to do that sort of thing. We have to work with them if we care about these issues. We just have to. And I think part, I mean, this goes to my uh, critique of Harris. He includes these liberal churches within a certain understanding of moderate religion that doesn't apply to them. And on that basis, treats them as enablers for fundamentalism and religious extremism, which they're not, right? They're not enablers of fundamentalism and religious extremism. Uh, They are some of, I think, the most powerful voices socially against fundamentalism and religious uh, extremism. I agree. Uh, well, what about, what about the argument that just by carrying around a Bible with that particular collection of books that the fundamentalists love to open up and bang on about, thump on, uh, that you're, you're in some sense enabling the idea that we're a Christian nation or that um, the words are all true just as written on the page, which is the, basically the, the fundamentalist ethos is a really extreme form of sola scriptura. Everything that's on there, just take it all at face value, whatever translation you trust, KJV preferably. Um, Well, let me say that um, I meet lots of people who are, uh, who uh, embrace the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration in theory. The this doctrine. is within your congregation. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No. okay. I meet a lot of people. Oh, you mean just people in general? In general. Okay, all right. Who embrace the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary meaning cover to cover. Right. Verbal meaning the very words inspired, right? Um, uh, in theory, they embrace it. In practice, I have never really met anyone uh, who truly uh, is... And an erratist when it comes right down to the nitty gritty. Well, I, I seriously doubt that it's possible to be a consistent inerrantist because there's certain things that I don't think you can reconcile. Right. Like if you just line up that part from Deuteronomy that says, "Go into the land and smite everyone against love thy enemies," <laughs> like I don't right. think it's possible to say right. these were inspired from the same source. 
Right. I just don't. Right. And um, uh, anyway, there's there's but the point I want to make is that there's an enormous difference between this uh, collection of texts because it's not a text, right? I've always uh, been frustrated with this uh, assertion: the Bible says. Well, the Bible is a collection of texts that have been accumulated over an enormous range of time, uh, written by an enormous range of authors, redacted by an enormous range of editors. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but by uh, carrying around it in a single bound volume, aren't you kind of enabling the idea that it is one text? Um, Shouldn't you carry around the Gospel of Thomas and everything else separately? It's all just pamphlets. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing: that there's a big difference between this collection of texts and the doctrines about it. Right. Right. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I think is the most powerful antidote to the more pernicious doctrines about the text is a deep understanding of the text and its history. Right, I couldn't agree more. Right. If you really, really understand this text and are able to think about the text really carefully uh, and, uh, and you really understand its history and where it came from and how it came uh, to be put together in the way that it is, and why the books that are in it are in it, and why the books that aren't in it aren't in it, and why some uh, versions of the book have books in it or texts in it that other versions don't, and uh, you know, and the like. Uh, if you really understand the text and its history, um, that's I think the surest antidote to this way of approaching it. Uh, this. Uh, uh, naive inerrantism that just can't map onto the text. Right. Uh, you sound a lot like Robert Price there. A, there's some famous uh, free thinkers and agnostics who have made those those very arguments, uh -huh. but they didn't. You know, they didn't come from the background that you come from. When whenever somebody who comes from a very fundamentalist background like myself comes to understand what you're describing, usually they just leave the faith altogether uh -huh. because they don't. You know, they don't come from a tradition where you're encouraged to, to explore that and come to your own conclusions about it, so they just leave. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you come from a... Now, my, my background is that um, I was raised uh, by basically two agnostic preacher's kids. Oh, my. <laughs> that, that is interesting. No. Um, my, uh, and my mother was raised... Uh, uh, in um, fundamentalist Norwegian Baptist um, environment, mm. um, this tiny little community of Norwegian Baptists, uh, evangelical fundamentalist community in Norway, and, uh, and they moved around Scandinavia before emigrating to California. Um, my my father uh, was a Lutheran preacher's kid. Um, and, um, just, uh, he just sort of drifted away into agnosticism, uh, without any sort of strong rejection of, of, of anything that he had uh, grown up with. 
my my mother uh, once they landed in Berkeley, California, uh, surrounded by the vibrant uh, intellectual community, uh, 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 an artistic community in the late fifties and early sixties there, and wanting to explore it and being part of a community that says to explore it is to open yourself up to error and I mean she just turned her back on it and said no right. uh, and, and rejected it but anyway uh, my um, my upbringing was uh, I was uh, sort of one step removed from uh, generationally mm -hmm. uh, any kind of serious religion my parents were both sort of basically agnostic and, and I just explore religion pretty much on my own um, and uh, uh, I, I we went to a pretty liberal Methodist church in upstate New York okay um, this is you, but, you and your spouse no my my, uh, my family uh, of origin my parents and, and kids uh, we the agnostic uh, preacher's uh, kids yeah the, the agnostic they still kids. felt the need to take you to a... They, they decided to take me to this pretty liberal Methodist church. The stated reason was so that you'll know what it is, so that you can make your own decision about what you think of it. Yeah, that makes a certain degree of sense to me. Right. I've taken my son to lots of churches, yeah. um, more or less for those reasons. Right. So uh, so they took me to, to this liberal Methodist church, and... Uh, Pretty much by high school, I had decided that it wasn't for me, uh, and it wasn't until college that I, um, uh, for reasons I won't get into now, really sort of started taking religion uh, seriously. Um, I, I do just want to ask one last question. What about the possibility that the new atheists are arguing against the god of fundamentalism, a god which you also argue against, that yes. you guys really shouldn't be on opposite sides of the argument because they're focusing on a particular brand of you know what what you'd called earlier superstition, as you know, yeah. Plutarch in Plutarch sense, um, and you're arguing against that as well. Like yeah. I, I get the sense that you're you're arguing for a god that they wouldn't even recognize if you were yeah. to explain right. them. This is what I'm arguing for. Yeah. They'd be like, oh well, we're not on about that. The, we're talking about religious repression and, and clitorectomies and all these horrible things that are done. Right, and if if the new atheists uh, were to position themselves in that way, and uh, if they were to say that um, our beef is with fundamentalism and religious extremism, um, and uh, we don't uh, uh, treat our arguments as really having any bearing on this other kind of religion, then I would say, you know, we're on the same side. You're an atheist attacking this dangerous thing. I'm a theist attacking this same dangerous thing. Let's shake hands and work together uh, to defeat this dangerous thing. Um, but the problem was, uh, and the problem is, 
that um, uh, they attack this dangerous thing and then they say, oh, and you're part of this dangerous thing too. Yeah, but only in the weakest sense that religion is such a broad term. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean Harris, this is... Harris tries to make the argument that you're giving cover, but it's not a very persuasive argument. Dawkins doesn't extend it. As far as I know, Dennett doesn't touch it. Yeah. And Hitchens is, is almost exclusively talking about not just fundamentalists, but the particular things that they're doing. Yeah. Like, but he's, he's very uh, kind of dismissive of uh, liberal and progressive forms of religion. Uh, he, um, there was an interesting, uh, interview oh, I between, think, yeah, I think uh, with the, oh, what's her name? Yeah, the uh, UC, or I mean, a uh, Unitarian minister right. interviewed Hitchens, and, and I actually wrote a, an essay for, uh, the online progressive news magazine Religion Dispatches about that interview. Um, they seem to get along pretty well once yeah. they calm down. Yeah. It took them a while. Um, I mean, what was interesting is that they agreed about just about everything. Right. Right? They agreed about just about everything. But the difference was that um, uh, she defined herself as religious, and he defined himself as an enemy of all things religious. But their views were the same. Right. <laughs> Which is what I find so frustrating is that whether you're right and the object of, of your ethical religious hope is real and there really is you know, a fundamental force of goodness behind the universe that preserves all, the, all these good things, or whether I'm right and we're really all just molecules uh, in motion, either way, the fundamentalists are doing a lot of damage and causing a lot of suffering, and that suffering is, is meaningful here and now, and we should work to stop it. We should yeah. work together to stop it. And, and the example of, of equal rights for gays and lesbians is a, is a perfect example. Right. Like, they're being treated badly for no good reason. And, and whether you can argue to them that they should interpret the Bible differently, and that'll persuade them, great. You know, whether yeah. I should persuade them that there are ethical principles that are more important than Leviticus, you know, wh however they can be persuaded to stop doing that, I'm for it. Yeah. Uh, we, we, <laughs> we don't need to be at cross purposes when it comes to these real, like, live issues that are right now being debated in legislatures or wherever. Let me say one more thing about what what I'm trying to do in my book. Uh, in a way, the new atheists are really some uh, a, a group that I'm making use of for a purpose, and the purpose is to help delineate the parameters within which I think. Uh, religion can be intellectually respectable and morally benign. And that's something you were, a project you were hoping to do before this whole phenomenon came along, if yeah. I remember. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I was I was working on something like that. And, and what I saw in the, in the New Atheist was a kind of foil against which I could pursue that project mm -hmm. in a way that might uh, uh, make it more relevant to contemporary conversations and, and the like. Get people uh, interested in it. Yeah. You brought right. me on board. Right. I mean, the the uh, the idea is um, the the new atheists have these objections to religion, mm -hmm. and I want to say, well, these objections pertain to much of what goes by the name of religion, but not all. Let's specify 
what is immune to these objections? This is a way of sort of uh, trying to get at what religion has to be like in order... Uh, we might say, what does religion have to be like in order to avoid these objections? Right. And um, in effect, what I'm doing is, is saying that religion can avoid these objections, but it has to look like this. Right. And if religion does look like this, then it is intellectually respectable and morally benign. And, and I allow and that possibility. Right. I, I've always allowed that possibility. It's just that here, <laughs> living in this cultural milieu as we do, like there's so many churches that are preaching something not that, like what you just described. Like, yeah. like you said, you had to commute to find it. You had to drive a ways to get yeah. there. I have no problem with the sort of religion that you're describing, but it is just disturbingly rare. Just, you know, it's, it's hard to find. Right. Where we live, it's. Um, I mean, it. It's probably not the most common form of religion. I think the reason for that, however, and this is part of what I aim to do towards the end of the book, to sort of diagnose what the problem is. Okay. Part of the part of the the issue that I have with so many of the new atheists is that they try to treat religion as the problem, hmm. right? And what I want to say is that um, it's not religion as such that is the problem. Uh, it is... Or that there's, there's a sort of deeper problem, and it manifests in religion. It also manifests in other places. Right, this is um, where you made the distinction between religion and religionism. Right. Or religionism is the, the divisive, you or you yes. in, in out group kind of Right. And uh, I think there's this uh, this deep human propensity uh, uh, for tribalism. Absolutely. Right? That's, that's, Absolutely. that's rooted uh, in our hunter-gatherer ancestry. Um, <clears throat> and we'll find whatever we can latch on to to say, you know, them and us. Right. That, yeah. right. And this, this tribalism uh, manifests itself in these in-group, out-group ideologies that uh, give us a sense of belonging at the cost of uh, establishing an out-group against which and opposed to whom we define the in-group mm -hmm. in, uh, into which we belong. And, uh, and this human propensity uh, plays out on so many different levels uh, of human social life, including the religious. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and it's when this propensity latches hold of religion that you get religious extremism and religious fundamentalism. Uh, this message <clears throat> that is, I mean... I, we're not. You're not going to get um, uh, the religious fundamentalists to read the God Delusion, but you might get them to read Jean-Paul Sartre's Anti-Semite and Jew. And if you could get them to read Jean-Paul Sartre's Anti-Semite and Jew, I don't know if you could get them to read it. But I don't know uh, if I could. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you could get tried. them to read it, this is an analysis of anti-Semitism and what what lies behind it. And what's mm -hmm. Uh, driving it, uh, that was written in, in the wake of the this explosion of anti-Semitism in Europe uh, during the, the 
period around World War II. Um, <clears throat> now, one of the things that uh, Sartre uh, characterizes as being sort of a central uh, force behind anti-Semitism is this desire uh, to achieve self-worth simply by virtue of being a member of the right group. Right. right. Uh, and uh, and that's paired with this sense that for my self-worth to be rooted in membership in this group, uh, there has to be another group I might have been a member of which doesn't carry that self-worth, right? right? That, that right. level of worth. So, um, so there's this kind of easy sense of value and worth that comes from group membership, but it's contingent upon uh, those not a member of this group lacking this worth, right? Absolutely. Right. So, so there's uh, um, so the anti-Semitism. Uh, is one way that this manifests itself. I'm not a Semite, right? I'm not a Jew. Uh, I'm a member of this other group, and uh, that makes me more valuable. It manifests itself in racism. You know, you have um, uh, the the poor, uneducated um, uh, white guy without lots of prospects. Um, without a you know a brilliant future ahead, wrestling with self doubt, uh, but then uh, a, a racist ideology comes along, and the racist ideology says, "But you're white." Yeah, you're you're and, part of the master race, right? Guy. You're part of the master race, yeah. and that and that gives a sense of self worth. But that sense of self worth comes only on the condition that. Blacks are inferior. Yeah, among right. others. Right, and among others. Right, and it should and, be noted that Germany as a whole was going through a massive inferiority complex right. in the wake of the Versailles. Right, I mean that. Right, the the conditions were right for that kind of ideology to sweep in. Yeah, massive unemployment and take, among others. Take yeah. hold. But if you look at um, uh, what many of these uh, fundamentalist churches offer, it's something very similar to that. Oh yeah. Right, it's you are among the same. The right. elect. The elect. Yeah, that's right. actually what they call it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, depending on how Calvinist they are. Right. Um, right. But I'm giving away uh, my background. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that's the uh, uh, there's there's something that's being offered there that is. Uh, uh, that is a, a manifestation of this uh, in-group, out-group mentality and the, the psychological forces that motivate uh, people to gravitate towards it. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why, uh, as part of the header for my blog, I have this one quote from Simone Weil, uh, is that this quote from Simone Weil is a repudiation of this kind of uh, mentality. Right? She talks about um, 
I don't. I, I can't reproduce the quote exactly. In I remember head, it from but, the front matter. Uh, the quote is that uh, uh, the children of God or the the friends of God. She talks often of the friends of God. Uh, should have no native country or no group they identify with other than the totality of rational beings. Um, that uh, we should. Uh, to, to be a child of God is to love as God loves, which is to love universally and without these distinctions. Uh, ah, here it is. Uh, the children of God should not have any other country here below but the universe itself, with the totality of all the reasoning creatures it has ever contained, contains or ever will contain. That is the native city to which we owe our love. And, and it goes on. It's on page 223 for those of you following <laughs> along at home. Right. And that, that is uh, the kind of, I mean, in this Plutarchian distinction between uh, superstition and religion, as he calls it, or we might call it the religion of fear and the religion of hope, um, uh, Simone Weil's comment there is characteristic, as is much of what Martin Luther King, uh, King's rhetoric uh, appeals to, is characteristic of this religion of hope, which... Uh, really stands opposed to uh, the in-group, out-group dichotomies and tries to invoke uh, the concept of God as a foundation for uh, an inclusive uh, and open embrace of uh, humanity regardless of group memberships and affiliations. Right. Uh, and... Uh, uh, of course, this kind of religion tends uh, to reject dogmas and doctrines that make divisions. And one of the things that I've uh, argued about uh, the doctrine of hell, again, this is uh, something we touched on earlier, but um, uh, is that the doctrine of hell makes this sort of ultimate division of humanity yeah. between the sort of ultimate in-group yeah. and the ultimate out-group. Right, absolutely. Uh, the sort of fundamental metaphysical uh, uh, division of humanity into the, the saved and the damned. Right. Uh, and if you introduce that kind of concept into your overarching theology, uh, I think it seems inevitable that your uh, practical uh, theological perspective and personal perspective uh, that you bring to the world and your engagement with others will be infected by the in-group, out-group mentality. I agree. Um, and so I think on a pragmatic level, the doctrine of hell leads to uh, uh, religionism. Hmm. Um, Which is that that particularly virulent sort of using religion to to create. divide yeah right yeah. Um, it's like it's akin to like nationalism as opposed to nationality yeah or racism as opposed to race right, right. yeah and um, there are there are liberal versions of the doctrine of hell that maybe don't fall prey to that pragmatic critique 
in quite the way that the dominant forms of the doctrine of hell as they are preached in pulpits do. Um, but uh, I'm still suspicious of those liberal versions as well uh, of the doctrine of hell. Yeah. Uh, the, those are the versions that basically say that uh, uh, that uh, God's love is all-encompassing, that God's reaching out to even the damned and never withdraws his hand, and if only they would reach out uh, uh, in turn or, or, or at least stop fighting yeah. uh, his saving impulse, they'd be saved, but there's just this willful rejection uh, uh, that leads uh, uh, to their to their miserable state and that uh, the yeah, problem with that progressive I've heard that argued for, yeah. argued for it it does seem somewhat irrational that anyone would do that yeah well I mean the thing the, the, the big issue with that is uh, what what this theory would have us uh believe is that people freely reject something which has nothing but good features in which favor of something which has nothing but bad features. Yeah, which say they're way beyond clinically insane. Right. <laughs> uh, in Making full really knowledge, experiential, immediate experiential knowledge of just how bad what they're choosing is. If they were not in full experiential knowledge of just how bad it was, they wouldn't be in hell because they wouldn't be experiencing just how bad it was, right? Uh, but to be in hell is to really experience the worst possible thing that one can possibly experience. So one really knows this is the worst possible thing that I could possibly experience and I am choosing it and rejecting liberation from it. Not just now and not just 10 minutes from now and not just a thousand years from now and not just a million years from now and not just 10 million years from now. I continually embrace utter anguish and misery for all eternity and I will never change my mind but I am freely choosing it at every moment. That seems to me incoherent. No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, I mean... Have you read uh, The Great Divorce? So that makes a bit more sense. Yeah. Have, uh, you, have you read that? The, I've read it. It's, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's more hell is really... Not, not like you were describing, but right. more... That hell... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's versions of the doctrine of hell that are, uh, hell that are premised bit, on this it's self-chosen state, but that the state of hell isn't that bad. It's a fair bit less hellish. Right. Yeah, it's more like yeah. uh, Detroit. Uh, right, something, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for your time today. I'm going to try to get the book club to read your book. I hope you can make it down. This podcast is a production of the Oklahoma Atheist, an organization dedicated to developing a community of like-minded individuals who share the ideas of free and critical thinking and as opposed to the uncritical acceptance of faith-based ideas and norms. Our activities include dinner meetups, potlucks, family outings, debates, speeches, book clubs, volunteer opportunities, and political events and protests. We welcome all who share the ideals of critical thinking and who reject religious dogma. In addition to cultivating the community, we wish to contribute and put a face with all positive things non-believers and people with a secular viewpoint are doing in the world. 
you'd like to know more, please visit us online at www.oklahomaatheist.com.